Welcome to ArcNext Sessions, episode 91. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Ken. This week, we're discussing the devastating fire that claimed the lives of 36 people at a party in Oakland last Friday evening at GoShip, a communal art and living space. Joining us today is S. Surface, a Seattle-based architect and regular guest here on ArcNext Sessions, who has started a crowdsourced resource for creating safer DIY spaces. We're also joined by David Keenan, Oakland-based organizer of Omni Commons, a local community center and venue. Thanks so much for joining us today, you two. Thank you. As Surface, after this tragedy took place, you were the first person on my radar ready to mobilize and take action. Can you tell us a little bit about your first thoughts after hearing the news? Well, my first thoughts are actually just complete shock and panic as I was acquainted, not closely, but through community with several of the people who perished in the fire. So, you know, after... I heard the news, you know, there was a a period of time when we didn't know what had happened to most of the people. They were missing rather than confirmed lost. And I guess my mind immediately went to how preventable this could have been, or at least how the danger could have been reduced, if not eliminated, and wanting to communicate to other venues how they might very quickly, immediately, for free or low cost, make improvements that would help the safety in their spaces. So I then began speaking to other colleagues, first reached out to actually fellow people who've trained in architecture as well as who have experience in DIY spaces. And we just chatted both about how we were terrified and grieving, but also if there was anything we could do to help. And it also seemed like, you know, people were mobilizing in all kinds of ways, ranging from fundraisers to compiling lists of the missing to contact information, etc. And so I just kind of wanted to help with that effort as well. So what form did that take? Well, actually... The form it took was very spontaneous in a way where another journalist contacted me, Dave Siegel from Seattle's The Stranger Weekly newspaper. And he asked if I would be willing to offer some very brief, basic tips on how local venues might start to become safer, having become aware of this danger during the fire. So I drafted off a very short list of extremely basic ideas, which are found in an article that was published on The Stranger's blog. And, you know, I uh, have trained in architecture and I've worked in the field, but I am not a registered architect, which I think is very important to be transparent about. And so I turned it into a, a publicly accessible Google document that I then shared first with a couple of other people that I know to be registered architects in different spaces and then decided to actually make it open to the public sort of in the DIY ethos spirit. So what I did was create a Google document that anybody could comment on, but that only I could edit just because we had witnessed some trolling of even the victims list where people were just messing with it. So I thought it was best to retain some control while still allowing anyone to give input and also to check in with uh, credentialed professionals to make sure that the advice was, uh, you know, as good as it could be and sound for what it was. David, you uh, run a similar type space in that It's communal space offered to the community in Oakland. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that space and the kind of similarities and the familiarity that you have with GoShip. Oh, okay. Well, first, before I say anything, I just wanted to put the word out there to, you know, anyone who's affected or concerned with issues around the fire to just Google Gray Area Victims Relief Fund. And uh, if you can contribute anything, I think that would be really appreciated. 
by the community in Oakland. In any case, well, let me just say that I actually have never been to Ghost Ship, although, of course, heard about it for quite a while. And I also want to say that, thankfully, like myself personally, I did not know anyone that was lost in that fire, although many friends of friends of mine were. So it's something that really reaches deep into the community in Oakland. And my experience in terms of trying to mobilize in the wake of this tragedy is very much similar to what the other guest mentioned, which is, you know, I I had a lot of experience dealing with the city in terms of trying to make spaces physically safe and also legal in the, over the last three years. And I immediately thought, okay, we've got to pull our resources and try to, you know, A, improve safety like now in our DOI spaces, but also try to support those spaces because a lot of them are already getting eviction notices from landlords just because the landlords are freaking out without the cities doing anything. You know, like that's something that's that's happening now. And, you know, tonight at the Omni, we're actually having a large meeting of people in the trades and people in DIY spaces to that effect. And, you know, we're just trying to organize resources that way. There's also some other resources like Google Docs, actually, just like as mentioned, there's one that's linked to you through Safer Spaces, which is, it's actually like Safer Spaces with like a dot before the ES. <laughs> and I know a lot of people have been going there as a repository and, and resource. And just to butt in for a second, the initiator of that document and I, our collaborators, we sort of posted our content at the same time and have been talking about what we do leading up to it. So we are very much in touch about each other's efforts. So they are simultaneously independent to each of us, collaborative and that we're getting community input, but also coordinated. So David, not being on the ground in Oakland, but hearing a lot about what's been going on there in terms of the, uh, the dot-com situation and how it's... I just heard a piece today. It was, it was related to... It was on NPR. I was talking about one bedroom, and I think in either San Francisco is uh, $2,400. Can you talk a little bit more about the real impact of the what's been happening with the uh, Silicon Valley and wh- what that's been doing and why what it's been really doing to the livability of people in those two cities. Well, for sure. I mean, to echo a lot of writing that's that's happened about this over the last couple decades, just in terms of my own experience. I mean, I moved here basically on tour with a band in the late 80s and stayed because I found it was a city that I was able to live in. As someone who considered myself an artist, I found it affordable and I found community here. And I've left a few times, but you know, for a year or two here and there. But I've always come back because of the value of the local community of of political organizers and also artists. Over the last 20 years, you know, I think anyone in San Francisco can tell you, you know, the classic wave of, of gentrification in every sense of the term, but certainly across the board, economic gentrification, I would say, has just sort of pushed artists out of, you know, first the city, San Francisco, and you know, now Oakland is effectively becoming, I mean, to my mind, kind of Brooklynized or something, you know, where you're seeing a building boom here. You're seeing the sorts of, I guess you might say, somewhat marginalized buildings that are warehouses just being torn down and high density residential condos, you know, with retail podiums in the bottom going in. And all of those kinds of things are basically just pushing artists out of the Bay Area totally. I mean, not not just artists. I mean, artists get a lot of mention in this, but, you know, it's everyone. It's the working class. And increasingly, it's the middle class. They just can't live where they have to work. And it's it's a total disaster. And of course, one of the ironies is, you know, <laughs> there's this kind of aura of, uh, like, coolness or, or cultural production that actually 
increases property values and draws people who have money, who are in the tech economy, to price out those same artists. You know, I mean, it's it's a classic cycle. And um, in the process, it leads to a lot of internal divisions as well. I mean, I could talk about this for a while, but, you know, I mean, just to give you an example, I mean, artists as such are often thought of as like the shock troops of gentrification, you know, into areas that might be affordable, i.e. economically depressed, you know, and they're often blamed and shamed, you know what I mean, for even moving to those areas, you know, and then you get this sort of refriction between members who are essentially of the same economic class, even if they have different ethno-racial backgrounds and everything else. So all of that just contributes to an environment where, you know, I think communities should be interconnecting, you know, and helping one another in the spirit of mutual aid to create affordable housing, create affordable places to work. Instead, they're just sort of moving away from one another as fast as they can just to survive. And and that that is something I really hope we might be able to change in Oakland by for example, adopting maybe a better analog of New York's loft laws and things like that, so that there's a path to, you know, having like a legal safe space and a place that would otherwise be unconventional. David, can I just ask quickly if you have seen in your area any development or good examples of ways to develop and use spaces that are, are allowing them to be available to all without the creatives having to be the, the shock troops, as you said? <sighs> I mean, locally. <laughs> or anywhere. I mean, is anyone doing this right? Because I know everywhere's doing it wrong. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't want to like plug my own project too much. I've been so consumed with it. Oh, you should. No, you absolutely should. It's, it's been so much work to make this work that I, you know, honestly, I'm a little bit disconnected from other important work that other, you know, similar efforts mm-hmm. might be going on elsewhere. But I can just say for Omni, I mean, we had a huge discussion around gentrification before we ever even picked a building to try to move into. I think they're a good example I think Omni is a good example because, you know, we found a building, it's going to sound a bit counterintuitive first, but, you know, we found a building where basically we were in an area that was already kind of gentrified, you know, condos had already gone up, fancy restaurants around the corner and stuff had actually already gone in, but we were adjacent to, you know, on the other side of the freeway, basically an area where there were a lot of people that were communities that we wanted to serve. The building itself wasn't occupied by any group or you know, persons that were typically displaced. It was basically a retired couple who really found that the building was too big for them. They were living in a 22,000 square foot building and they wanted something smaller. So we consciously made sure that we didn't displace anyone and that we moved into an area where we wouldn't cause an acceleration. You know, if we had moved into an area like West Oakland or East Oakland now at the time, you know what I mean? That was a big fear. And in fact, we were offered in a way at least one space in those areas that I argued against because I was worried about the impact of, you know, that that it would just show that it was a sign of redevelopment. And I argued against that. <laughs> so I feel that Omni's done a pretty good job of, you know, trying to cater to communities that we feel need support while at the same time not leading to economic gentrification. I can't think of a lot of other good analogs. So what are we learning about, you know, from this tragedy as architects? You know, what should we be focusing on? I really wanted to actually draw a lot of attention to sort of secondary danger of this. Of course, there was the immediate danger of of everyone who perished in the fire. But there is also a secondary potential for danger, which we're already seeing in municipalities like Nashville and Baltimore, where municipalities are rushing to shut down and evict 
these kinds of spaces in the wake of the tragedy. And on one hand, you know, we certainly understand, like, I'm sure that everyone's heart is in the right place where they're wanting to prevent this massive tragedy and, you know, save lives. But then it creates another emergency, which is a potential for eviction and displacement. And I do strongly believe that this is a time to support cultural spaces and to support not only artists, but anyone who for any reason is living in conditions that might be ad hoc or informal or not up to code. I should say living, creating, working or gathering because these spaces are often complex. And it's a time to help these spaces become safer rather than rushing to displace them because that is not an appropriate or sustainable response to this issue. There is then another layer of risk, which is, you know, if people are being evicted and buildings are being displaced in the wake of this tragedy, that does open them up to the sort of acceleration or gentrification forces that have just been discussed, where you you move out a group of low-income or ad hoc users, and then you repurpose and renovate it, suddenly it is no longer affordable. And so then it contributes to that acceleration process, or it removes a sort of necessary type of gathering space from the landscape of the city. I also really wanted to point out that, you know, much of this response has been coming from the perspective of supporting artists and creative people, musicians, etc. And I hope that our collective response can be to broaden the scope of that. Certainly there there might be people who for many reasons are living in ad hoc conditions. They might be um, folks who are refugees or just simply low income for some reason, perhaps, you know, living under the radar of authorities for economic or legal reasons. And so I think that it's important to acknowledge the specificity of the cultural space and the gathering space, but we also need to be thinking about storefront churches or other kind of informal gathering spaces and residential spaces where anyone could benefit from support in becoming safer, whether they are able to become fully code compliant or it's merely at the level of harm reduction. Yeah. You know, it's interesting as that it just seems that when a tragedy like this happens, there's this rush to overreact and move it the needle in the other direction without understanding the full implications of what, what you just said, the, the hastening of the gentrification of that particular space. You know, this fire was isolated to one building. The response time was pretty quick, but it was relatively isolated to one. It wasn't like a whole neighborhood got wiped out. Perhaps it's because so, the building next door was fire appropriate, you know? Yeah, and it, it, that's entirely possible. So what really should happen is, is that the, the cities obviously should recognize that that they have a building stock that has been built over 100 years or so, and they are not all co-compliant for the uses that are happening in them, but it shouldn't overreact. I mean, I've worked with clients where I've walked them through a, a phased in process of making the building safer. And it was a multi-phase project. If a municipality can rush to shut down a building in one day, why can't they mobilize resources to help make a building safer in one day? You know, what is the priority there? Why is the impetus to punish and restrict rather than to support? Even if everyone's shared goal is this life safety and, and preventing tragedy. Right. And, and you can make these buildings safer without displacing people. I don't understand why the adults in the room, the, mainly speaking of the, the city officials, because they tend to treat everyone else that isn't them. They patronize them and you know, like, we don't know 
what's best. And I think that architects need to step up. And, you know, if you're looking for opportunities to help, and this is a this is a great issue to galvanize around, you're not going to make any money off of this. This is not a money-making effort. And the time you, you put in to try to recover a fee is not going to be worth your time. It's just not going to be worth your time. And actually included some about that in, in the document we've created, where one of the points of advice that I first drafted was to talk to your people, whether you are a proprietor attendee of a DIY venue, there's probably people in your community. Like I know in mine here in Seattle, we have licensed electricians who play in rock and roll bands. We have architects in training as well as registered architects who are going to shows who might be inclined to support. And I actually did write, you know, discuss boundaries and compensation. I don't think that professionals should always even in these circumstances, be expected to work for free, but you can clarify what your rate is and, and you know, rate it as pro bono rather than volunteer. You can work out some kind of compensation plan. Like maybe it's good enough for you if you get in for free to shows for a year, or maybe the venue does a fundraiser so they can pay you a lump sum fee or something like that. But I, you know, I think that there's a shared responsibility. And in fact, you know, one of the moments of advice that I plan to add to that is general accountability and transparency. Like that might mean that you evaluate your venue and you decide we actually shouldn't be doing events here. Uh, you know, we need to be accountable to the public. Or maybe it means you're very transparent with the people who attend exactly what the risks are. So at least people are consenting and not completely clueless and unaware of the risk that they might be taking. It might be making improvements to your venue. You know, there's a lot of really holistic, big picture ways that this needs to be addressed. Yeah. And if I could jump in for a second, I think those are all really good ideas. In the work I've been doing with the two projects I've been with for the last three years or so, I've done exactly that, you know, reached out to our community to essentially comrades and, and friends, friends of friends that work in the trades to donate or work at a reduced rate to make the kinds of improvements we needed to make to become safe and eventually to become legal. I just want to say that on the part of cities, there's, to my mind, there's like a really big hypocrisy about putting, you know, all of the expectation about making a space safe onto, say, a tenant somewhere. I mean, for sure, you know, a tenant has the responsibility to do that. But I don't know how things are in other cities. In Oakland, in California, you need the landlord's permission and active cooperation to do any kind of like permitted building work officially, right? So like if you wanted your, I don't know, electrical system inspected, so you could put in an exit sign, you know, all of those kinds of things. And a lot of landlords that are allowing people to move into buildings, those buildings have existing code violations before anyone even moves in. They won't cooperate with that. They don't want code enforcement, inspectors or whatever, anywhere near their building. And it's these kinds of sort of imbricated, I guess you could say, complications that really contribute to, you know what I mean, whether it's life safety or accessibility or anything else that those projects never even get started. And I also want to say something else, which is, and I'm actually going from a real life example here, you know, in the city of Oakland, you have to take out a building permit if you're going to replace, say, like do a, a structural improvement for anything greater than like half a sheet of drywall, right? So if you took off a sheet of drywall, that's a building permit. Now, a sheet of drywall at Home Depot is like $12 or something. The minimum building permit fee is $280, not counting all the other stuff. And you're required to submit, okay, it doesn't have to be, you know, stamped by an architect, but you're required to submit a full plan set in triplicate. And if you don't pay for expediting, your turnaround time is usually between six and eight weeks before you can even start. So these are the kinds of things that like are crazy. And I mean, another thing that's crazy, everyone's like, oh, why don't all these spaces have sprinklers to tie into like East Bay mud 
I mean, last I checked, this was like a year ago because I'm looking into it for our building. It was between twenty and thirty thousand dollars just to tie in before you run a single pipe. Yeah, and there's this kind of level of cluelessness among officials and professionals, oftentimes, where like you don't really understand what it's like to be a person who maybe lives on five to twenty dollars a week, who is obtaining food mainly out of dumpster diving or something like that, or you know, like twenty thousand dollars is a lot to most people. $20 is a lot to some of the folks who are inhabiting these spaces. And so I'm also hoping that this is an opportunity to really educate officials and architects and professionals who lack the competency to communicate with people who are inhabiting and visiting these kinds of spaces. I think there's a major communication gap where you know officials are very quick to sort of condescend or to basically make themselves unapproachable to really be extremely adherent with no flexibility. And so people stay away from them. And I think that that can be overcome through, it's not just only a one-way sort of educating people in ad hoc spaces on how to make these spaces better, but it's also a great need to educate professionals and officials in how to be more culturally competent. Well, even just educating them, you know, I think architects have a tendency to look at every problem and see a building and that's the solution. You know, (laughs) what's so great about this document, uh, S, is that so many of these things that I would offer my services for don't include me doing a fucking drawing. They would just be me walking through saying, you know, you can't, you can't do that. That doesn't work. Like I pointed out in the one example, you know, just because you have 10,000 square feet doesn't mean you should be able to stick a thousand or 2000 people in there because you have a standing room only at five square foot, because maybe it only has two exits and maybe it was built for a factory and maybe, well, that's, you know, 200 gross square foot per occupant. Look, it doesn't even have to be a design professional. It just takes someone who has some fucking basic knowledge and knows how to read the code and just it's. Some simple things that can happen that I think that there's a fear that anytime you talk to me, a licensed architect, it's going to cost you money. And that's not simply not the case. If it's the difference between, you know, 36 people dying and me not getting a a dime, I don't give a fuck about the money. I just don't care. I mean, I would rather do what I can to just walk through your space and say, no, don't do don't do those things. Don't stick 2000 people in there. Yeah. And of course, there's liability. But, you know, there's also speaking as a private individual. Like I personally, although I I do now have a very fancy architecture education and network, I come from a background where wouldn't even know an architect. Like architects and doctors are just like, they're not your friends. They're just like random abstract people that like you might encounter. But like your friends are like the janitor or like other working class folks. And so like, It took me myself as someone who went to Yale and studied architecture eventually like a very long time to overcome that barrier. And that's super real. And with the list of tips that I provided, it certainly is informed with my experience in architecture, but it's also very much just common sense that you honestly don't always see. Like clear your hallway, put a sign at the exit, consider putting some glow paint on the floor to point to the exit. Really, really basic things that anyone can do that it probably shouldn't affect your professional liability if you're just talking to your neighbor and saying, hey, like, discover cleaning. I wanted just to jump in for a sec and say there's another dimension to the everything you said, I, I completely agree with. There's another dimension to the liability, which is the city's liability and how it motivates, in my experience, people like plan checkers and permit clerks and like, you know, planners at the counter or whatnot. 
to deny projects or discourage improvements because just by kind of saying that it's okay, like by approving your application and converting it into a permit, for example, you know, if they find all that permit and there's something wrong, they feel like they can be sued. And in Oakland, there is a real fear of liability and they'd much rather you just don't do it at all. You know what I mean? Which is... Wait, 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 wait. That's always striking to me because I signed the drawings as an architect. So when I submit the drawings, my liability, I'm on the line. You know, and you could talk to two different code officials in the same office sitting across from each other and get two different interpretations within five minutes of each other. Yeah. I've had that happen. They're ridiculous at times. I think Paul pointed out that, and certainly in my city, the cities don't take liability for anything unless it's a really egregious problem. Is Oakland different? Can they actually be sued in the Oakland Building Department? You know, whether they can or, or can't be sued I don't know, but I can tell you their fear of being sued is real yeah. and it has real effects in real life. And so it's like, absolutely, I can tell you, for example, one of my projects, I had to have like two separate endorsements indemnifying the city like forever, you know, about the work I was hmm. doing in there and about the kind of wanted to run a collectively operated cafe in there. I mean, that's kind of crazy. Any special event permit, you know, that was one of the things that was brought up, for example, in the media. Oh, you know, they should have pulled a special event permit from OPV to have this party. Well, to do that, you're indemnifying the city and insuring them. So it actually is cited, at least, as a reason to deny things. And it's really, really bad. Like, it's very frustrating. And the other thing is, there's a part that plays into this. And in my experience, again, I'm not actually a building professional. I've just tried to help spaces. But that is that Let's just say like a planner or a plan checker denies you or a fire, you know, engineer or something. In my experience, actually, people in the trades aren't used to pushing back at all. It's always been me. And in one case, like I had to appeal something basically to the state architect in order to get a project completed and make the safety improvements I wanted to make. And the architects and contractors and stuff I was talking to were like, no, forget it. It's game over. You know, there's nothing you can do. And I found that the reason for that is that, okay, if you're an architect or work in the trades, you have to have a good relationship with the city, you know, because you have other clients. You're going there all the time. Are you really going to push back against a building official and go to like, you know, the Accessibility Appeals Commission and everything else to like, just for one project, because, you know, of something that to you might be relatively minor, like they want you to have two gendered accessible bathrooms instead of one or something. You know, it's like my experience is that most building professionals aren't willing to do that. So that leaves really leaves like the client or in this case, people are trying to build out DOI spaces on their own when it comes to like fighting for, you know, what they want to do. Um, and, and I also want to say that every project, and I mean every single building project, every single like, you know, zoning clearance and stuff I've tried to present has been denied at first. Like I was told that it was impossible, you know, and it's only now after years, they like recognize me, you know, I'm there behind the permit expediters or whatever. Like now when I go there, like they just treat me like a normal human or something. But before that, they always said everything I wanted to do is impossible. They said the Omni would be totally impossible. And if I moved in, that building would be red tagged and like padlocked. And in fact, my first experience going there, the planner literally turned around and walked away and said, I'm going back into my office. I don't want to listen to what you're saying. Like before I even said more than five minutes what I wanted to do. Something came across my Twitter today, and I will find it for the show notes, about an article that the Oakland Building Department, in fact, was in a huge ton of trouble a few years back for terrible corruption and graft. So maybe there, you know, since that came out, I feel like it was in the early 2000s that that was discovered. I think that was San Francisco. 
but I'm not sure. I know the same I feel thing. Like this happened. was Oakland, but yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll look it up and find it. It's just some, you know, social media yeah. reference. Fake news, maybe. Hopefully not. I mean, the other thing is I'm not apologizing in any way, shape or form for like building and planning division in Oakland. But those guys are definitely super overworked. Most of them, yeah. you know, they have like planners of like 60 projects and like plan checkers. I don't even know of like hundreds or something. And it's like they are sort of intrinsically motivated to do the least amount of work possible. And what happens is, in my experience, you know, doing most of the work myself and everything that you have to kind of clear this hump where you make it clear to them that it's actually more work for them to keep denying you than to actually start working productively with you. And that's something I think anyone that goes down to those departments has probably has to cross that Rubicon or whatever at some point. But it's not clear. I mean, I know people that are going down there this week to the planning department, to the building department to try to do some of these changes on their own. And they're getting pushback because they don't know that. They're just like, oh, I went down there. They said it was impossible. So I guess I'm going to move out or whatever. So, I mean, David, you're absolutely right. I mean, and, and a lot of what you said is absolutely true. I mean, see, that's where it's frustrating for me as an architect to hear about the cowardice of these architects. And then I'm just going to call it what it is. You built a relationship. You built a relationship with the people downtown. You should be able to leverage that relationship to kind of, you should either know your shit and be a decent architect and leverage your skill and your relationships with those people downtown to help people out. I mean, I've gone to the mat for projects where I can say, this is worth going to the mat for. And I think I found a way in the code and I'm willing to work with the code official. And as long as you present a east of Minneapolis, and again, Minneapolis is not like New York City or not, it's certainly not like Oakland. I can get my permit in like three weeks. And I've had some issues, but I've, I've gone downtown and on behalf of a client and I actually sat with a code official and walked them through the process, walked them what I was thinking and then got buy off. And a lot of times it does matter that you have a relationship. And yeah, if you're just going down there and you don't have the benefit of having somebody advocate for you that it certainly doesn't bode well for you. You certainly, because look, like you said, they're automatically, if they're already behind some kind of feeling like there is a threat of lawsuit, then they're certainly not going to just let anyone come down there. But on the other hand, what I can say is that I'll do my work to advocate for you. But at the end of the day, what I also need is the the passion of the person that I'm advocating for so it can kind of help me make that case. And that's really, I mean, it really is a team effort. You know, just recently I have gotten past a code official and didn't get a response that I liked. And I said, you know, and I just, you know, pled my case a little bit and worked it and, and I got what I wanted. And but yeah, it's it's doable. It just again, it like anything else, it takes some time, it takes some effort and it takes a willingness to want to leverage your relationships. And, and it's simple as that for me. Yeah. I mean, I've started bringing people with me when I can just to try to to get others involved in the community, some literacy and like comfort you know, with how to, you know, deal with all of that bureaucracy and how to like not freak out when you put, you know, your job valuation down to replace one sheet of drywall as like $30 and then they cross it out and write $1,500 because, you know, that's how much it would cost you to hire someone to do it, even though you're just going to do it yourself, you know, whatever the crazy reasoning is and how to like kind of you know, calmly and methodically and respectfully, you know, push back against all of these kinds of, you know, practices. I mean, some central place like us that you were talking about, like an online resource, but also a group, you know, that that could function almost maybe a lawyer isn't the right word, but but basically a professional who can go kind of is comfortable dealing with people like, you know, planners and inspectors and stuff is something I think this community really needs because people get overwhelmed. Like tomorrow I'm going to do 
a totally informal, non-professional life safety type inspection at one of the spaces. And just from doing this before, highlighting a lot of the things that you mentioned us in terms of like the basics and the affordable things that can be done. I've just noticed that people's eyes glaze over and they're when you talk about everything that's wrong, you know, and kind of just being able to reduce it down to a kind of punch list of like core life safety things, whether they're in the code or not. That's kind of my goal for tonight's meeting that we're having. And as a resource online, the kind of work that you and, and Melissa are doing, I think is just really good. So I think that there seems to be like a real urgency right now to look at ways to avoid this kind of tragedy, because I just have a feeling that, you know, once this news kind of starts fading away, people that are running spaces like this, like Ghost Ship, may start to forget about, you know, the importance of making their spaces safe. S, in your experience putting together these resources, I mean, what are some of the first things that architects can do to help create a safer space for for these people? Well, the first things they can do would be to look at the Safer Spaces website and sign up to help volunteer. If they happen to know people in their community who are involved in these spaces, they can reach out to them to at least start a conversation about how they might help or express a willingness to offer their expertise. There is a a program uh, called the One Plus Program, which is run by the nonprofit Public Architecture. That is the One Plus all spelled out as words.org. And that's a place where architects can sign up to offer pro bono services if that's something that they're interested in. So I would say just maybe start off by talking to people directly or by looking at one of these organizations to start getting involved. Yeah, and we will definitely include the links to those websites in our show notes. So if you're listening to this, just check out the new section on Archonnect for those links. I mean, is the solution simply to, you know, have to conform to the city's regulations? Or I mean, how can we find a middle ground? Because it seems like, you know, there's a pretty big leap between a space like Ghost Ship and a um, a space that fits all the requirements like OmniCommons, for example. I mean, how can we how can we find a middle ground? I mean, I don't see any other way other than adding some provisional language into the, you know, the planning code, the meaning code that allows for a path forward for people that are living in buildings that aren't zoned for residential or live work. You know, I haven't read through all of New York's loft laws or gotten all the feedback about how effective those are. But something like that, you know, I don't know, some sort of amnesty. I mean, certainly a moratorium, at least in Oakland, to my mind, on like evictions, just to sort of stop the, for like a little while, just to sort of stop the flood of them that are happening or seem to be happening now would be really good. But there has to be some way, you know, like a condo developer can like, you know, go into like, like an industrially zoned neighborhood and change that change the zoning for a building, you know, they can change it to be, you know, residential or some combination zone. And I don't see why the same ability couldn't be afforded to people who are still living in those places. You know what I mean? I think a conscious effort has to be made to that effect that I just don't see any way out of it. And, you know, Libby Schaff, from what I hear, has raised a fund through the Raining Foundation and others of like, I think a million and a half dollars to support artists, but like way more than money. In my opinion, there needs to be a change in the zoning code. And I think, you know, plan check and inspections need to be a little bit less punitive and more positive, you know, in terms of supporting the work that people can do. You know, like they often won't final something until every little thing is fixed or done. And it's like, that could take years sometimes, you know, like people need to be supported. And then I also think, I'm still trying to figure out how to say this correctly, but 
landlords that are sending eviction notices to people now are probably operating out of fear, fear that they'll be censored or get in trouble in some way for allowing people to live in a place that they shouldn't be living in. And the landlords need to be talked to, you know, the property owners, there needs to be some way to mitigate this fear, the fear of liability, you know, basically. Right. And actually just wanted to to jump in and point out, um, you know, having created this document that, you know, on one hand, I've, I've received a few snippets of criticism from architects and other folks, uh, you know, ranging from the jokey, like, oh, wow, this is so genius. It's kind of like a building code. Oh, wait, we already had building code to, you know, people expressing the concerns about liability. But the overwhelming response I've had has actually been appreciation for it. In fact, several city officials in different United States cities, as well as people who are involved in drafting building codes, have reached out to applaud the effort and say that they support it and actually to seek out the advice of myself and the folks behind Safer Spaces. So to me, that indicates that there is some room for openness, at least among some places, and uh, certainly a recognition that what we all really want is for people to be safer and for buildings to be safer. So I hope that that can translate into the kind of action exactly that you're talking about, where whether it's a provisional language or actual resources channeled toward making spaces safe. So as to your comment, you know, about the jokey comment, someone being like, oh, maybe it just sounds like a building code. You know, I think we architects, and I completely take blame for this, we think that the things that we know everyone should know, like it's just common sense. Of course you should know that the star on the button in the elevator means that that's the level that you discharge at. Well, my mother didn't know that, and my mother is a smart person. And like, it was like 10 years ago, I was in an elevator with her, and I pointed that out. And she's like, I had never heard that before. I mean, we're so steeped in it that we assume everyone knows that there needs to be two staircases that are separated. There needs to be, you know, all of these things. I myself have learned from reading this document as it's evolved. For example, I am a co-curator at DIY Art Gallery here in Seattle. And in fact, our building is code compliant and legal. However, I had never before yesterday taken the time to really look at where's the fire extinguisher. I mean, we have it. It's safe. It's not expired. It's well-maintained. But I wouldn't have, now I know exactly where to go get it. That's like a change that I made in my own knowledge and behavior. You know, I hadn't really realized that you spray down to the ground in a fire and not up at the top of the flame because that's how fire extinguishers work. That I feel like, you know, some of these things that to a lot of people seem like very basic knowledge are, you know, even as someone who has a certain amount of professional knowledge, I'm still learning. And so I, th- I do think that there is a real use for this kind of document and skill sharing. You know, as I'm looking at the document, it's it's what's remarkable about it is that when it gets too focused on like very code driven specifics, it doesn't move away from that, but it doesn't get so narrowly focused on because the code isn't just like one piece of information taken out and I'm going to put it aside. I'm going to read that part. There's so many interweaving sections of the code. If you're looking for that kind of document, then you clearly have enough funds to hire a design professional that can walk you through and get you through that. But this is really this for me, at least, and at least it's how it's presented. It's really about what are the least things that people could do to make their space more safe? What are the next few things that you could do to that cost a little bit? And it's kind of like whenever you have an existing building and they want you to do an ADA upgrade. So they they do percentage, like what is it, um, like 20% once you've exceeded like a certain, it, it varies in different states, but once you exceed a certain level of construction, you have to do a, a percentage upgrade for the ADA. So this is kind of in that same vein where like as you increasingly move into certain areas, you're going to have to spend more and more money where like the, I think the biggest thing at the end of the, the document is the sprinkler system. That is the most 
insanely cost prohibitive thing that would need to get done in a building. I mean, is there enough water pressure to the site? Is there a line coming into the building for that already? I mean, the piping in the building is nothing. That's that's nothing. The, the real thing is getting the water and the pressure and making sure that that is enough to power the sprinkler system, even if it does have a fire department connection. But, you know, the levels of trying to make sure that here's the bare minimum. And as you get further along in the process, here's what you need to do. And then kind of approaching it from that direction. I wholeheartedly endorse what's being done here. I mean, I've run into many architects who've read the code and miss a comma and then oh, and myself included, have to go back and read it again and catch the comma and it changes the meaning. So the idea that somehow that architects know the code inside and out better than anybody else is patently absurd. I mean, we know it and I'm constantly reading it. We know enough to refer to it. Yeah. And find what we need to know. Yeah. And, you know, if I do four projects in a year, I'm looking at the code maybe four times, but most of my time is being spent doing construction documents and construction administration and all other stuff. So there's not a whole lot of time where my head's buried in the book. So I think it's important, but I think what's being done here is even more important. Codes change. They are modified. They are evolving. This might be an opportunity to evolve them. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it, you know what? That's the, the other thing too, right? Is that we have IBC, but that it always gets modified. And then cities and st- or states and sometimes cities, I think, add their amendments to the code. So that kind of process takes, I would, and I imagine California is, re- you know, they, they have a whole different set of codes that, you know, I would have to take a test for. So, I mean, it's a pretty onerous process. And usually California leads the way in making sure that once California does something, everyone else does whatever California does. Pretty much. I just want to probably be my final comment, but I just wanted to say, like, I think real change can only happen, you know, by modifying planning code, by changing some of the practices around, you know, how building enforcement is currently working. And I mean, the building code is labyrinthine and dense and interlocking in ways that can be really hard for professionals to to work out, let alone regular people like me. It's just, uh, you know, I think there just has to be an overall, above all that, there just has to be acknowledgement where if someone's trying to make a building safer, physically safer, you know, if someone is trying to preserve, you know, their community or the space that they might live and work, that that is sort of fundamentally supported at some level, like and acknowledged that people are trying to do the right thing, you know, and maybe you can't put in sprinklers right away, or you can't do things right away, but that, you know, you put in an exit sign, you know, or you've, you've mounted fire extinguishers, you've, I don't know, like put door closers on doors so fires don't spread as easily from room to room. That is sort of incrementalism, I guess, could be actually acknowledged and there can be a path forward to the end. Not just, we're not going to let you have an assembly here or we're not going to final anything until you fix every little last thing. Then people might not even start them at all. And also remove, of course, somehow the element of fear that if you're not doing everything by the book, then suddenly you're placing your space in jeopardy or something. That would be my last comment. Well, this has been a, a really tragic event, very sad I'm hoping that conversations like this and others that have surfaced since this event will contribute to saving lives in the future. I realize that both you, uh, S and David have a personal connection with this disaster, knowing friends. So we really appreciate you coming and joining us and providing your invaluable insight into how to prevent events like this to happen again in the future. So thank you so much. And to everyone out there listening, thank you so much for listening and, and try to, you know, think about how you can do your part to, to uh, help in these efforts. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Arconnect Sessions on our Twitter account at Arconnect Sessions or with hashtag Arconnect Sessions. You can also email us at connectedarconnect.com. 
And if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thanks again, everybody, and uh, talk to you next week.